Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm the director of the Global Summitry Project. You can find most of our activities um, at the uh, website, globalsummitryproject.com. And there, of course, you can find our podcasts, the three different series, the Now series, the Summit Dialogue series, and the Shaking the Global Order uh, series. You can also find these podcasts at iTunes and at Spotify. Um, at the website, you also see our two uh, major research initiatives. One, the China and the West Dialogue Project with our research there and also um, the uh, advancement of the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals and Agenda 2030. So this is um, uh, in the Shaking the Global Order series, series two, episode 13. And I was pleased to be able to sit back down with Scott Kennedy from CSIS to discuss uh, a variety of issues um, in the Asia-Pacific or the Indo-Pacific, as the United States is currently calling it. Um, I, I was fortunate uh, to, get an, uh, to get a podcast with Scott because he's recently returned from five weeks of travel uh, in uh, the Asia-Pacific, and uh, I wanted to get his take on how uh, colleagues, uh, experts, officials in uh, the Asia-Pacific viewed the United States, um, uh, particularly after President Biden's first uh, trip to Asia very recently, and also to get, of course, their take on uh, China and the U.S.-China rivalry. So uh, it's with great pleasure uh, that I now invite uh, Scott Kennedy back into uh, the virtual studio. So uh, welcome, Scott, uh, back to the virtual studio, as we say. Happy to be here with you. Oh, that's great. So look, um, you recently ended uh, an extended trip through the Asia Pacific. You had stops in uh, Taipei and Taiwan, uh, Seoul, Korea, uh, Tokyo, Japan. Now, you know, as you put it, I, I was aiming for China, but <laughs> took a detour following Shanghai's lockdown and the unpredictable situation in Beijing. My trip around East Asia was challenging logistically, parenthetically, I bet, and, uh, but it was absolutely amazing to be on the ground doing field work. So I guess uh, the initial question, given you were out there in the Asia Pacific, was um, what are the big takeaways as you see it from your, from your five weeks? Thank you. Uh, well, uh, happy to talk about the, the trip and what it means. Uh, I wanted to go because I feel like uh, the lack of fieldwork and travel mm -hmm. uh, deprives me both of jet lag and the opportunity to get outside the echo chamber of, of Washington. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, folks in China and East Asia face the exact same ch challenge. And I think the echo chamber in Beijing is even louder and harder to escape. Um, and so um, went uh, my timing my China timing stinks. Uh, my timing for the rest of the region, not so bad. Now, I don't know if we ought to call it the Asia-Pacific or the Indo-Pacific, but we'll, we'll go with the American version of the Indo-Pacific right now, which is the, originally the Japanese version. So, 
but uh, I had um, uh, an amazing time. It's still difficult to travel because there's still COVID and there's still requirements right. for visas and quarantining and uh, testing and, and all of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in any case, I, I came away with two giant takeaways. The first are uh, Taiwan, South Korea, and Japan have very resilient societies are uh, relative to others uh, very well run. There's a high degree of social trust and they they get stuff done. Mm-hmm. And uh, these are vibrant societies that you could have written stories on long time ago or even recently where you would have projected a very different outcome. Uh, uh, folks born in Taiwan versus those who have family that moved over from mainland China, big fissures, the, the challenge of North Korea creating potential fissures within Korean society and, and Japan, a whole bunch of different potential sources of disagreement and the 20 year slowdown and et cetera. But they, they all are extremely well run. The level of, of, of the anti-vax community in, in all three is quite low. Mm-hmm. Uh, high vaccination rates, their ability to manage uh, Omicron is, is pretty uh, well relative uh, to others even uh, their big neighbor next to them. Um, and so the first thing is, is just, I, I uh, encountered uh, three relative, three very well-run uh, societies mm-hmm. uh, in contrast uh, to, I think, the challenges in the US and, w- and what we see in China uh, and maybe many other places. The, the other big takeaway is, is that they have uh, it said in different styles, uh, different areas of emphasis, uh, different thinking about how to deal with the challenge of China. Mm -hmm. And I I would put it this way. Um, It's it's about um, uh, small words in sentences, ands or ors. I think in the United States, we tend to think of the challenge of dealing with China as we engage it or we compete with it. Um, And in the region, uh, at least in these three societies, again, said in slightly different ways, it is we engage with it and compete mm-hmm. with it, mm-hmm. or maybe even more directly is we engage with it to compete. We engage with China to compete. That is, they, they think that they have a lot of advantages that, uh, and ways in which China is dependent on them and the rest of the global international order. Uh, important leverage. They want to be irreplaceable uh, for China and, and critically important for China. And that that is part of what will make them competitive and successful. And so that difference between or or and, I think, is, 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 is quite significant. I think you also find this with uh, uh, some of our, our uh, friends and allies in Europe, uh, and in and, and ASEAN. And I think it's important that I found that in Northeast Asia, because these are the countries in the region that have the strongest anxieties about China. Mm-hmm. And if you go to Southeast Asia, of course, you're going to hear that. Don't make us pick sides. Uh, can't you all get along? Or, um, you know, let's ad- ad- admit to everyone getting their own type of economic and political system and, and, and not force anyone to choose anywhere. I think that that even Japanese who probably have the closest view to the Americans in terms of the level of the challenge that China poses to the international order still believe that one has to uh, figure out how 
engagement works to our advantage, even in a competitive context, not just because they're trying to be nice to China. That's not the reason. So to me, those are the biggest giant takeaways. But we talked about also, I talked about all sorts of things on the trip from COVID to semiconductors to Ukraine and Taiwan and other things, but they all come down to sort of those big giant takeaways. Yeah. And and I take it this filter is not just a societal perspective. This is a perspective that filters up to the politicians and the administrators, et cetera, right? That this is something held more broadly and and more particularly with, with the politicians. Sure, sure. And I mean, I talk to folks in, in business, uh, in government, in uh, academia, and mm-hmm. there's not uniformity of opinion. Uh, in any of those three segments or across the three countries, there's variations. But if you look broadly speaking, the proportion of views or, or balance of opinion uh, yeah. sort of settles down in that area. There Again, different flavors across the places. But yes, it was not just sort of a talking to the man or woman on the street. Or ta- I did talk to some taxi drivers. Everyone's <laughs> got to talk to taxi drivers when Absolutely. you travel. But uh, they weren't the only folks that I queried. <laughs> Okay. Um, And were you there during Biden's uh, trip or had you left by the time he he arrived in in East Asia? Uh, I um, uh, came home uh, May 20th. So by then he was just landing in Seoul uh, to start his his trip off. His trip. Yeah, there. And then um, I had and and so I he uh, I left just a little bit ahead of him. And and the delegation, they travel heavy and um, they had a lot to do. And I, I was a little bit lucky. It was a little bit challenging in South Korea. I was there during the inauguration mm-hmm. uh, of President Yoon. And yeah. that was an interesting moment. But it also meant folks were super busy. But when uh, but it still overall was good timing coming just ahead of the presidential visit. Makes sense. So so let me, you know, uh, clearly the uh, probably in some sense is the most dramatic a- aspect of the Biden trip was his press conference in Japan uh, and the president, uh, you know, caused quite a commotion with his statement that the U.S. would intervene if China invaded Taiwan. Now, to be fair, this it wasn't the first time that Biden had made a statement uh, like that. But, you know, what's the reaction? What was the reaction, as best you understand it, in particularly in in Taiwan, but then obviously also in China uh, for this, you know, kind of lowering the bar with respect to strategic ambiguity. Yeah. You know, um, there's, a, I think, a great game going on uh, of of trying to figure out and decipher what President Biden meant uh, during his press conferences, as well as what he said at least two other times. Uh, using similar style language. language. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one time's a boo-boo, two times is a mistake, three times seems like a, a serious pattern mm-hmm. uh, and not and not intentional. And then, you know, of course, aides come out and, and make corrections. I think the my outside analysis without really understanding internally what they were, what was up mm-hmm. is, is that um, they are, they want to signal uh, and provide some kind of reassurance to Taiwan and some kind of deterrence to China in the wake of both having uh, left Afghanistan um, in a, a hurry to 
put it mildly, and uh, that even though now the U.S. Uh, and its friends in Asia and Europe are very actively supporting Ukraine, want to make sure also that the there's there's some concern in in certain circles that very early on the U.S. Um, signaled that it would not use its own military in a right. in a Ukraine right. um, contingency. Right. And therefore, that was some sort of green light and to, to Putin. And they want to make sure that that's not the type of signal that is received in, in East Asia. So but precisely what exactly if that was their intention or not, I certainly it's read that they are leaning forward in the direction of less ambiguity rather than more. Mm hmm. Uh, and 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 that's certainly how we've seen the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson and others in China react. Mm -hmm. I think in Taipei, again, I I had already headed off. Uh, right, right. But my my sense in in following up with people who were there uh, that I did meet with is is, is that okay? To, you know, broadly, hey, not not bad. But what we really care about is what the United States does, not what it says. And okay. so okay. they really want to know, you know, they want to see actions with regard to um, the U.S. military, its assets in the region, what type of, of um, uh, military har hardware is sold, uh, what type of coordination there are um, between the U.S. and, and others. Uh, what can they do to genuinely forestall and deter an, an attack? Um, that's the, I think at the, that's the bottom line actual concern as opposed to uh, what is said during press conferences. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, so let's, you know, clearly it sounds like, and it makes sense to me that, you know, Ukraine is kind of something that all parties are looking at, right. And trying to assess whether it's related to action or deterrence or however you want to, you know, kind of uh, to read it. And I guess it's it's worth, uh, you know, kind of understanding, uh, if we can, a little bit more about the Chinese position on this, because clearly they had signed up to this, uh, you know, uh, no limits friendship. This was prior, obviously, prior to the uh, to the uh, invasion, uh, the unprovoked invasion of uh, Ukraine. Um, and it's worth kind of asking the question, um, you know, did um, did Xi Jinping under, you know, was he told that there was going to be this, uh, you know, as best we understand it, that this uh, action in in Ukraine uh, was he made aware by Putin that this was a, a you know a real possibility, and you know how does he you know how how do we assess his reaction currently to the to the um, to the uh, uh, aggression in in Ukraine by the Russians? Yeah, yeah. Again, this is another one of those mysteries that we we <laughs> might not get uh, resolved for right. a, a while. Right. Certainly, yeah. the Chinese were told by the Americans, apparently, based on media reports and uh, briefings by unnamed. Uh, administration officials uh, that they had uh, given very clear 
information to to China about Russia's plans and right. that they were dismissed. Mm-hmm. Either dismissed because they like don't believe anything the Americans say or because they didn't they believe them but they didn't want to let the Americans know they were in on it. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. My my yeah. sense is is uh in in reading other things that the Chinese have written and, and said mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. they're I think there's still some sense of disbelief that there was going to be a war mm-hmm. um, or that Ukraine would put up such a fight that it would last more than a few days. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. the I, I, I don't think that the Chinese had done a heck of a lot of analysis about uh, what Putin was going to do and and whether or not Ukraine was prepared and what the rest of the world would have done was going to do. Mm-hmm. And this is just another example of the policy process in China uh, changing under a very heavy-handed uh, system in which political correctness is is absolutely paramount, in, in which there is an echo chamber, in which if you sing a different tune, it's going to be obvious and you're going to be in real trouble. And so I think that we've seen that on on COVID. We've seen that on common prosperity, on mm-hmm. on Russia, yeah. Ukraine, on lots of things. And it's totally plausible to me that they didn't really get it, um, and they just are making it up as they go along. And they got caught with you know the pants down, and now they you know they don't want to admit, holy Moses, we went way too far. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's. It, it, it really befud- it, it makes me really wonder uh, about the capacity of chi- of Chinese leaders to really analyze. I, I guess one of the things that I go back to thinking about the February fourth joint statement yeah. that I haven't heard people talk a lot about was uh, the fact that there had been this diplomatic boycott of the Olympics, and Xi Jinping needed something mm-hmm. to show the world that China wasn't isolated. Uh, and a mo- monster joint statement with Russia, who they had been, he had been improving the relationship gradually, mm-hmm. would show that, you know, heck, Biden, you're not coming. The others, you're not coming. Well, uh, forget you. We've yeah. got, I've got another friend here uh, with, without understanding, you know, that this potential forthcoming conflict would then be seen chi- as China uh, uh, facilitating it. Uh, right. Now, again, they could it could all just be fake hand waving and they really know what was going on and they're just sort of playing possum. Uh, we don't know. I just tend to think that we've seen so many mistakes in the in the system come out of China that the uh, uh, mistake answer or mistake analysis is, is, is just as plausible as the long term strategic plan analysis. Do you have a sense now, you know, what what does Xi Jinping take away from Putin's actions in Russia? What, you know, in quotes, what lessons may he have learned uh, from what occurred, what has occurred? I mean, maybe it's premature because we don't quite know the end game here. But nevertheless, as you pointed out, these guys lasted a lot longer um than every you know certainly the russians anticipated but there's a suspicion that the chinese anticipated what yeah. do they what do they take from this and particularly with respect to taiwan yeah well i think they they I mean, part of that's the kind of thing that we can learn from traveling 
and 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 interviewing people which mm-hmm. uh, although i didn't make it this past time i'm i'm hoping to do so beginning in august and um up till the 20th party congress but if we if we're just hypothesizing based on what we read the limited kind of interactions we have with with colleagues and friends um you know it seems to me potential lesson is heck uh it's not just a land border it's a water border or you know you don't call it a border but there's a lot of land there's a lot of water between uh china and taiwan that's difficult and um we it's gonna we need overwhelming force uh and and that's and we're not and we may not be ready it's it's now if you put the capabilities of both sides down on paper it looks like a pretty reasonably even fight depending on how things would would go and i think actually in a variety of different uh war game scenarios that are run on this side of the pacific uh things don't always turn out very well for 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 the us or for taiwan but the and so but nevertheless a very difficult fight Uh, so give them pause the us and west came to ukraine's aid even though it wasn't a nato member mm-hmm. uh, they haven't put and they haven't put forces in if they were a nato member and forces went in that'd be an even bigger fight and t- i would assume that that they would think that the american commitment to taiwan is of a higher level than to uh ukraine for mm-hmm. example and we're seeing japan australia even nato and some european countries t- to talk specifically about Taiwan and their interest. The the other thing I think they would think is, you know what, if even if our that what we really need to do is develop overwhelming conventional capabilities uh, and act quickly, um, we we have to think about the possibility that we might need to invoke, raise the possibility that nuclear weapons could be used. If we want to really keep the US on their back foot and out of the game, that may be uh, what we'd need to do. And that may, and you know, when Biden said we don't want to fight World War III over Ukraine, that must have been what he's had in mind. And so, if you're a Chinese leader thinking, you know what, these, this is uh, what we may need to think about. We have a no first use posture at the moment. We mm-hmm. may need to revise that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so that's a very uh, significant um, potential escalation of of how one thinks about potential crisis in the taiwan strait the other i guess from the american point of view is yes they need to figure out how to uh increase deterrence uh in the taiwan strait but they also need to figure out how to provide some kind of reassurance to china so that they don't think that war is the only solution that might fix this they need to understand that there are still possible non-military non-confrontational ways to achieve an outcome which which could be consistent with their overall goals mm-hmm. or at least they need to understand the us is not um saying that there can only be one kind of outcome and one that china wouldn't accept i think that's why we've seen since um uh, the us say orally and on paper reinserting in their website that the us doesn't support taiwan independence Mm -hmm. so uh Mm -hmm. i think everyone is taking away a variety of different lessons from uh, what's going on in ukraine and and, but lastly i mean what do the taiwanese take away from this you know how does it shift their political posture with respect to the 
you know, to the uh, issues with with the mainland? Um, they need to be ready uh, for a conflict, and a conflict is not just fought between necessarily professional militaries and soldiers, but mm-hmm. this is a full societal conflict. And so, Taiwanese, you don't get that sense in Taiwan when you're traveling and talking to people. It feels like a normal place could be anywhere on the planet, not with a overarching shadow of a potential aggressor nearby. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, people, I think, have a hard time imagining there could be tanks on their streets or buildings blown up or severe casualties. What would they do? I think one reason is um, they've had peace for so long. There's been this right. balance. Yep. It's also extremely unnerving, right, to think about that and then actually prepare. That might have an effect on uh, domestic political stability. Uh, and, you know, you, if you're a politician, you, you're not trying to convince people that war could come tomorrow. You're trying to convince them that, hey, we're prepared to deter war. And right. we, will, we will keep you safe. So I think that's that that reality of, of watching what has been happening in Ukraine, I think, makes it more real for both uh, the Taiwanese government, uh, their military, and most importantly, society, who are really grappling with this. Um, you know, they've seen, they saw what happened in Hong Kong, but that's, you know, yes, Hong Kong's had its rights stripped away, no one country, two systems anymore, but it's not the PLA like going down street by street. And so so they didn't have to grapple with that. I think the other thing is is that they realize um, they need need Taiwan uh, uh, to be um, a topic that is of global, that receives global attention. That it is important uh, for reasons of democracy and supporting friends economically, strategically because of where it's, physically located that uh, the, you can, they do not want folks to forget Taiwan uh, or think that, or, you know, go, oh, are you talking about Thailand or, you know, some other, t- or, you know, some type of confusion. And so there's a real effort to make sure that the Taiwan brand is well-known and front and center. Uh, and that, I think raises questions, you know, do, does Taiwan benefit in some ways from greater tensions between the between China and the West or, or, or not? Mm-hmm. But if, if they aren't visible, if their benefits to the rest of the world aren't consistently understood and repeated, then I think they're 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 anxious about what could, you know, will those commitments that are on paper or even mentioned at press conferences be true in reality when pushed comes to shove. Uh, so I think in some ways, what this does is is raise some anxieties uh, in Taiwan about things that they need to do. And mm-hmm. I think that's largely constructive, uh, even, even though it, it, you know, uh, they have to be much more vigilant, I think is the overall takeaway. Okay. So one final thought, kind of the bigger, the bigger picture, how do we see the reaction to current uh, Biden initiatives in that region, whether we stick with Asia Pacific or call it Indo-Pacific? I mean, the, you know, the fact we saw the, the kind of the revitalization of the quad, 
when the fact that um, you know AUKUS was uh, put together that is uh, with respect to nuclear transfer technology and submarines and and most particularly I suppose um, the IPEF which is the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework um, that the United States has initiated uh, they're now likely to negotiate with something like 13 different parties in the in the Indo-Pacific or the Asia Pacific. So so how how are these countries, the ASEAN, uh, the East Asia group, how are they reacting to Biden's efforts, um, you know, kind of the big picture in terms of in terms of the Asia Pacific or the Indo-Pacific? Yeah. Leaving China's reaction to the side for a moment. Yeah. Uh, and looking at the others. I think there's um, a, 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 a split vote here. Mm -hmm. what, the, what the U.S. is doing on national security, two thumbs up. <laughs> two thumbs up. Yes. Um, uh, AUKUS, the Quad, discussions bilaterally, uh, mm. greater engagement, mm. very consistent, very clear, um, not just incremental but really moving in the in the direction of away from the hub and spokes model, where yeah. it's the US at the center and others individually interacting with the United States and uh, in a much more multilateral direction, um, very thoughtful. Uh, around the edges, things that could be tweaked here or, or, or there, but nevertheless, broadly speaking, two thumbs up for IPEF and what the U.S. is doing economically, mm -hmm. uh, two thumbs sideways, <laughs> two thumbs sideways. All right. I don't want to say two thumbs down because uh, <laughs> that would be really that that would uh, it'd be like a failing grade. I don't want to say that. OK, but, incomplete. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, at a minimum, incomplete. And mm -hmm. uh, 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 several of my colleagues and I recently issued a, a sort of a mini right. report card on the president's trip, which uh, several of them said incomplete. Incomplete. Yes, I saw that. At a minimum. <laughs> and I, th I think that there is great anxiety in the region about how on, on the economic front that the U.S. proposals are half measures of half measures. Mm. And that um, and that is a product of American domestic politics that we, we started really ambitiously uh, almost 30 years ago, pushing reform of the GATT. And we got the WTO, we want to expand uh, the membership. We came up with uh, the Doha round, remember the De Doha development agenda, which was about right. reforming right. the WTO to be even more uh, constructive to help de uh, developing countries. Countries, yeah. And, mm -hmm. and, what it, and what have we done back? We've just backslid since, 2002 mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in reverse. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, we, we started with, you know, okay, we're going to go regional agreements. And then we started thinking of, of, we took New Zealand's idea for TPP mm -hmm. and found other partners. And we go, okay, we're going to create this sort of new 21st century agreement, pretty broad. We got Japan on board and 30 chapters covering all different sites of things. And then we treat TPP just like the League of Nations and away we walk and, and leave it uh, there for, for others. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we are then thinking, OK, then what are we going to do? And uh, first, the first answer is we're just going to put bilateral pressure on China and squeeze it until it yells uncle and then and then declare victory. And we tried that for a few years. 
yep. didn't really work in that, unless you feel more favorably about the phase one deal than I do. And, and so nope. now we're now, now we're back. Uh, so then we're one step even further back, which is mm-hmm. we're going to nicely ask a, a, a small number of countries to talk about some issues that are important in terms of setting standards in the region. And we're going to call it IPEF. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have they they agreed uh, in their statement that they issued in in Tokyo to ha- start having consultations about negotiations. Mm-hmm. That is uh, far short of what our previous ambition had been, and mm-hmm. I think the uh, reaction has been at a at the best reaction. I think has been we want the U.S. to stay in the game, mm-hmm. and it's the U.S. and so we're going to go along. And if it makes progress. We will help. I think that is the most positive thing I've heard. Most of the time I heard, what is this? Uh, Why are we doing this? Uh, Is this going to take away from TPP and these Mm -hmm. other initiatives, which invite, which actually provide market openings to them? Um, uh, Where are we going with this? And, you know, okay, we'll sign on to the, and we hope it, succeeds to the, we will sign on and we hope it fails. Uh, And that eventually we get back to TPP and we get back to something else. So I think there's the the contrast between the evaluation of what the U.S. is doing on the national security front versus the economic front is is pretty clear. I think what gives the U.S. a saving grace on this is one, you can see a path between IPEF and TPP uh, back to uh, Geneva or Paris, if you think about what the OECD OECD does and right. some other ways, you can cobble together a, a, a genuine story about how we get to a broader multilateral framework on that. And that the U.S. is currently going through a variety of changes and at some point will have a, a, a more constructive view about globalization 2.0 or 3.0, you know, uh, that uh, they, they need to. Um, and so that that's certainly a more constructive way to think about it. Um, and I think so hope against hope. Uh, but folks, I think, feel like they're kind of taking a detour right now and being sort of led down a path which they don't know where it goes. And, and I guess that I guess the other sort of saving graces is, is China seems to be messing up across the board, security, economic wise. And so by comparison, what looks like a very small initiative on the U.S. front, at least, is constructive, right. and and so that, in comparison to to how badly Beijing is performing in so many levels, gives the U.S. saving room. But at some point, Beijing it might figure things out, find north again, in which case the U.S. is going to need to do more to step up. Well, Scott, I really want to thank you for this uh, tour de horizon that uh, you provided for us, and pleased that you're trip gave you these all all these insights so really appreciate your willingness to talk with us uh today thank you very much thanks so much alan it's been great meeting with you and uh, look forward to having a conversation uh sometime again soon in the future yep